Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you? Doing very well. We battled through the elements to get here today. We got dumped on a little bit of snow, almost a foot of snow, but we are nestled here in the Crawl Space Studios. And there was an enormous truck blocking the parking lot entrance. Like a semi. It was really weird. You and I had to jump the curb just to get into the parking lot. Yeah, a flatbed truck. The guy, we're just chalking up to, as you said, just Wormtown eccentricities. Wormtown being Wormtown. Yep, just block a parking lot. I can't move it. So today, Lance, we have an excellent chat with three fine gentlemen. Yep, friends of the show. We got John Lorden, Snappy Dresser, Mike Morford, who still is waiting on his mug, and Gray Hughes, who we didn't know until this interview. But he's a great guy as well. And each man brings a different skill set to their new podcast, Lance, called Three Men in a Mystery. Yep, and... You can tell right away how the dynamic plays out. You got John Lorden, who is the face of it. He talks to people. He books the shows. He seems to be the uh, the media portion of it. Mike Morford with his talent interviewing people, being able to make people uh, feel comfortable. And Gray Hughes with his technological element. He brings the 3D animation to it to see how they can incorporate it all together. And this episode is called Double Murder in Ozark because these two young women, J.B. Hilton Green Beasley and Tracy Jean Hollett, were murdered in Ozark, Alabama in 1999. So we go back to 1999 in Alabama where these two young ladies were discovered in the trunk of the car. There's many suspicious circumstances, including the license on the dashboard, a bullet strategically placed on one of the bodies. And everything about this seems to line up to an easy open and shut case, but that is not what's going on here. Well, it's unsolved still. And uh, our friends, Mike... John and Gray are diving into it and really trying to help the case out. There are answers. Someone knows something. These two young women were murdered in 1999. There are answers to be found. So check out the show. There are links in the show notes. Someone knows something, Lance. And as we know with the work that John Lorden does and the work that Mike Morford does with criminology, that these guys are doing this for the greater good. They've been working with a lot of people who are close to the case. They're going to give you a lot of good interviews, and we just want to help get the word out there along with them. And those two guys, John and Mike, you and I, Lance, we're speaking on a panel with them at the ASOC conference in Albany in April. And we better bring our best duds because you know that those two guys will look the part. So these guys haven't had much success in speaking with law enforcement in regards to this mystery yet, Lance, but that is what part of what we're going to be doing at the ASOC convention. The American Investigative Society of Cold Cases is having its annual convention in Albany. You and me and Mike Morford and John Lord, we're going to be talking about true crime podcasting, working with law enforcement, working with the families of victims. And this is a convention organized by our new good friend, Detective Kenneth Maines. We talked to him about his detective and police law enforcement past a couple of episodes ago, and that was super fascinating. And the guy really is just a genuine human, and we're looking forward to sitting down with him at the ASOC and seeing how what we do, what Mike does, Gray, John, and all the true crime podcasters, what we can do to work with law enforcement to make what we do as responsible as possible. And to help real-life mysteries if we possibly can. So check that out. There are links in the show notes. But Lance, you and I are also going to CrimeCon in NOLA, New Orleans, Louisiana. Cannot wait for that. There is no better place in the world than New Orleans. Couple that with 
podcast row and June 7th, 8th, and 9th is going to be a great time. It really is. You and I are going to do some live shows. I believe Chloe's going to make her way down and she's going to join us for a live show, live crawl space. But I think we're going to do a live Missing Maura Murray and possibly in empty frames as well. We might as well do it. We might as well roll as deep as possible. And please come and see us and use the code CRAWLSPACE19 when you go to CrimeCon's website and register for the standard package. That's CRAWLSPACE19. That'll give you 10% off. And we better mention Stitcher Premium as well. So check out stitcherpremium.com for all Crawl Space's archived episodes. And there's a healthy amount of them. And you can also find some Missing Maura Murray creator commentaries and our art crime podcast, Empty Frames. And you can get your first month for free by using the promo code MMM. And every subsequent month will be $4.99. And it's not just our shows. You get bonus episodes of True Crime Garage. All the comedy podcasts that Midroll does, Art 19 does. Earwolf, yep. Earwolf. You get hundreds of, of exclusive episodes for just four ninety nine a month. So it's a real bargain. Ad-free, might I say. That's right. And all the Crawl Space archived episodes are ad-free as well. Actually, everything, I think, on Stitcher Premium. Is ad-free. Yeah, boom. Yep. <laughs> Do it. Also, I want to bring up Private Investigations for the Missing. That is a nonprofit organization that we work with Bruce Maitland on. He is the chairman of this board for the nonprofit. We are on the board. We help with all the media stuff. And go to the website, investigationsforthemissing.org. You can donate. There will be a link to the GoFundMe page. And what this does is provide resources and funds for people who have missing loved ones, cold cases that law enforcement just doesn't have the resources to look at right now. Well said, Lance. And there are links in the show notes for all these things. Please enjoy our conversation with John Lord and Mike Morford and Gray Hughes about their new podcast, Three Men in a Mystery. Thank you very much for listening. Welcome to Crawl Space. Today, Lance, we have three very special guests on the line, and they have a new podcast called Three Men in a Mystery. Let me introduce our good buddy, old friend, Mike Morford, with his sixth appearance on Crawl Space. A record-setting sixth appearance, <laughs> might I add. How's it going, Mike? <laughs> How you doing? I'm trying to pad those stats. <laughs> you pad away. Your, your, your mug is in the mail. Swear to God, your mug is in the mail. You know what? I swear to God, swear to God, the we ordered a mug, and the USPS is undergoing an investigation to try to locate this mug. I I swear to God, Morph, we can send you the email. There is possible <laughs> indications of collusion here. Yeah, we There's, we think they're not tampering. doing enough. You know, we're. Uh, I think somebody stole it from my front porch. I should get one of those ring. Uh, no doorbell things to watch who's at my porch stealing my, my mugs. <laughs> you should, but you but should. apparently it never left the USPS uh, station, or it's it's lost somewhere in the station. Uh, and then a, a thorough investigation is being uh, conducted, so By they told us. By an independent investigative team. <laughs> so they told us, but no results have been uh, found yet, so that is the truth. Um, and we're actually starting another <laughs> podcast called Crawl Space, Mike Morford's Mug. <laughs> Missing Mike's Mug. <laughs> That's got to be a Patreon episode. <laughs> okay, and uh, there are two other fine gentlemen on the line here today uh, who we have not sent to mugs yet to yet. Um, well, we could just say we did, and we, they just haven't shown up yet. That's true. We could we could say that, uh, but that would but that would take away from the uh, complete 
truth of Morph's mug. Uh, John Lorden from Brain Scratch is on the line. How's it going, John? Good, good, good. And I think this is my third time being on the show. So you're right. You're right. You do deserve a mug. You do deserve a mug or an espresso cup. <laughs> we are slacking. <laughs> And uh, our good buddy uh, Gray Hughes is on the line as well. What's up, Gray? Ah, not much. Um, I haven't been on the show, <laughs> so what I would say is get me the mug first. Okay. Get that uh, out of the way, and yeah. then we'll – it's like an IOU. <laughs> Gray's got I just want mine. it before them. Yeah, I just want mine before them. <laughs> That's well, how it'll work. <laughs> well, you can order it from the Zazzle store, and we'll reimburse you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> up to 10% of the cost. <laughs> so uh yeah welcome gentlemen it's uh it's nice to have you all on the line this is a, a, a very special conference call uh here and uh we're talking about your new show three men and a mystery so um yes yeah why don't you tell us a little bit about your show who are the men what what's the mystery the mystery is a murder that took place uh it's coming up on the 20th anniversary it was back in uh August 1st of 1999, uh, actually on the evening of July 31st, but into the morning of August 1st. And we have two teenage girls. Uh, one of them actually turned 17 on July 31st, and they're going out to a party. Uh, they get lost on the way to the party, seemingly. Uh, they wind up at a gas station in Ozark, Alabama. One of the girls calls home to let her mom know that they're going to be late, but they are on their way back. And unfortunately, they never get home. Uh, they are found the next day. Both had been shot once, and they are in the trunk of the vehicle that they were driving around in. And these two young women's names are J.B. Beasley and Tracy Hollett. Okay, and this happened in 1999, July, and in Ozark, yeah. Alabama. Yeah, they lived in a town called Dothan. Uh, that's just a little south of Ozark. But it's um, it's a pretty troubling case. There seems to be a considerable amount of uh, at least physical evidence. We know there's some form of a DNA profile, and uh, we just have a lot of questions about why it hasn't really progressed, why it hasn't moved forward, and we've got some ideas on uh, outside of obviously talking about its race exposure, um, we've got some ideas about trying to help uh, possibly by funding some further DNA analysis or contributing to law enforcement in some way like that. That's awesome. Taking it back a step, how did the three of you connect to do this podcast, and why did you choose this one to be your first featured case? I had been talking to Morph, and I had been talking to Gray, kind of separately. And Gray and I have been talking for a long time about trying to collaborate because we're both YouTubers. Seems kind of like there's there's a natural way for us to collaborate, but it's just kind of tough with the production schedules that we both have. And he's a little bit of a different YouTuber because he's more in the live stream space and I'm more of, you know, uploading kind of finished products. Um, but then I started talking to Morph and then I kind of just thought, hey, you know what? I need to get these guys together and see if there's something that we can do. And Initially, we started talking about trying to leverage our different platforms because we've got Morph, who's very heavy in the podcast space. We have Gray, that's the live streamer, and me, that's kind of the traditional YouTuber. And can we use those skills um, outside of our we, – we have kind of different uh, expertises as well. Gray is amazing with maps 
and 3D recreations. He's a very detail-oriented person, which is great for looking into cases. Uh, Morph, one of my favorite shows that Morph does is The Murder of My Family. Um, his interview skills are top-notch. And, you know, I do a lot of interviews myself, but I still feel like Morph just knocks him out of the park. He's got this way of uh, getting people to open up, and he really gives them a lot of room to speak uh, kind of like I'm not doing right now. So in terms of the case, let me pass it over to Morph. Morph, how did we get to this case? Oh, it. I have been interested in this case for, for I don't know, maybe four or five years now. I can't even remember. And there's so much complexity to it. You know, there's a, uh, on websleuths.com, there's like pages and pages and pages about this case. And I, I took notes, and I'm, I'm watching these threads grow, and, and there's so much rumor and innuendo. Uh, but there's facts mixed in there. And I said, this is a really perplexing case. And, and I wanted to do something with it, but I was I knew it was a daunting task for, for one person to do. And I said, you know, I, there's no way I can, I can try and do this on my own. There's too much to it. Um, so I reached out to to John first and he looked into it and I think he was, he saw that it was equally uh, perplexing, you know, the, just the magnitude of, of what's involved. And then he immediately said, John would, or uh, Gray would be fantastic with this because there's so many different areas that we're talking about. And it's, it's hard to explain where these areas are in relation to each other. So he thought that Gray would immediately be a good fit to, to demonstrate where these areas were, and that's sort of how it how it started out. Well, that's great. So you guys are all bringing something unique to the table. Sounds like a good pairing. So this podcast is all about this one case. The initial season, yeah, we're we're really focusing specifically on this one case. We're doing kind of a deep dive, uh, you know, something along the lines of missing Maura Murray. Um, we just really wanted to focus, and I. In my brain scratch world, I've kind of moved to doing case coverage where I'm really hitting one case a week and then moving into a different case the following week. But when I started the show, I was really focused on this one case in particular, and I did like 15 episodes of that case. And I keep hearing from my audience that, hey, John, we'd really like to see you do another deep dive. And some of the cases I look into, it's just, it's not there. There's just not enough information. There's not enough um, chatter or rumor to go through and to try to take all these different thoughts and, and run them out and see if there's any anything substantial to them. But when Morph brought this case to us, um, I knew as soon as I looked into it, there's just, there's, there's the nagging feeling that you want to help because we're talking about two young girls that had their lives cut short. We're talking about a murderer that could still be alive and out there somewhere. Um, but then looking at the information, there was a couple people on web sleuths that worked really hard to get some good, concise, um, information from news sources primarily and to try to put that into one written document as a starting point for anyone that was going to come later and try to pick up that case. And once I read through that document, I, I knew this, this was the case, at least for the first season of Three Men in a Mystery. And I kind of, I feel like we're all open to letting it run as long as it needs to. I mean, if this goes on for many more episodes than we're anticipating, that's fine. If it goes into the second season where we can continue on this story, that's fine. 
Um, but if we need to switch and deep dive, go into a different case for the second season, we're open to that too. All right. That sounds awesome. Uh, you mentioned that Gray does 3D animation and graphics. Uh, how is that going to come into play with uh, what each one of you bring to the table? That has been a bit of a challenging aspect, um, but we've, we've got some ideas on how to handle that. Uh, one of them is we're going to have supplemental information that comes out with the podcast. So if you go to threemenandamystery.com, you'll find a page where we have a specific episode. You'll find photos that pertain to that episode. And Gray is going to be making some, um, you know, he might be using Google Earth to do flybys and to, you know, show the area to, to people. But he's going to be making kind of shorter, very focused videos that will be put up alongside that. And we're also talking about having an, uh, a YouTube component that might be released on my Lord and Arts channel as well. Uh, of each of the episodes so we can integrate gray's video work with with that as well i initially we had a it was kind of a different uh plan but we've sort of evolved into you know basically the podcast that we're going to be doing live shows and the supplemental uh video so i think i'll be able to show people the locations and i could even do some animation i mean i could use 3d studio max maybe uh, put you know where the car was located, that kind of thing. Maybe try to recreate some of the uh, scenes, I guess, inside the vehicle, uh, in the trunk specifically. Maybe even on the dashboard. Maybe we could get a a model of the vehicle. I mean, there's some really interesting things going on with the vehicle. I think that's probably one of the most perplexing parts of the case. Is just where the vehicle was located and the things going on inside. I'm not sure if we want to put that all out there on, on this episode, but, uh, well, uh, we, I'm sure we could, we could touch on, uh, you know, you've got, first of all, the logistics of the two girls being in the trunk and because of how they were found in there, uh, police have been very clear about who they thought was put into the trunk first and, uh, possibly shot first. Uh, the, the dashboard thing that Gray mentioned is kind of important because when the vehicle is found, uh, JB's driver's license is actually on the dashboard. And police have been very clear that they believe the car was moved after the murders. So um, in that particular vehicle, the front side of the dashboard is very, very round. So it would kind of lead you to believe that if the driver's license was left up there, that it could slide off while the car was being driven around. And, of course, when you have a driver's license on a dashboard, you got a lot of people talking about the possibility that uh, someone could have been portraying law enforcement, uh, you know, pulled the girls over, asked for their driver's license. Why is the driver's license out of her purse is one of the very big questions in this case. Okay, so, yeah, let's get into some of these some of these other details. Um, so there was a, an investigator sent over there and happened to find them inside the trunk. They were shot with 9 millimeter. Bullets, one shot each? Yes. Was there any sexual assault? That was another point of contention kind of early on. Mort, do you want to go into that more? Yeah, so the, the police examined them for sexual assault, and there didn't appear to be any. However, there was semen found on one of them, on, on their clothes, um, which, you know, there's no clear indication that they've ever done anything with the DNA from that semen. Uh, whether it was something consensual that happened earlier or whether it belongs to the killer. But that's one thing we'd like to see 
hopefully done and, and explained is what's going on with that DNA. Can we track that to somebody and find out who it belongs to? Is it is it something uh, consensual that happened earlier in the night and then that person in the clear, or does that belong to the killer? Because, you know, there's been cases, you know, just recently, I, I can think of some, I had the Golden State Killer case where sometimes there wasn't a sexual assault of the victim, but the killer actually masturbated onto the victim uh, and left semen in, in that instance. So just because the victim wasn't uh, raped or sexually assaulted doesn't mean there wasn't some kind of sexual component by the killer. So I think I think it's important that we get to the bottom of who that belongs to and see if they can track that DNA through GEDmatch or some of the other uh, Parabon resources that, that we've had uh, in the news lately. And I think that's one thing we all want to do is, is, you know, reach out, which we've done, reach out to police, investigate in the case and say, you know, have you gone down this avenue? Is there anything happening with it? Uh, and, and unfortunately, so far, uh, we haven't had a big response from anybody connected to the case, um, which is unfortunate. But that's one of the things we're hoping for is that people, as they hear our podcast and watch some of the YouTube stuff that we're doing, will reach out to us and say, hey, I know this or I know that, or I'm willing to speak to you about some of this information. And that's what we're hoping happens. I'm feeling pretty good about that possibility um, just because it happens to me so frequently on my channel. And I think that's one of the reasons why it might be good to release a, a video version of the podcast on my channel as well. Um, it's fairly common nowadays that I'll do a case and I will hear from family members like literally the next day on it. So I'm hoping that we have that same kind of effect happen here. Yeah, I think a lot of times it works. Uh, things work out that way in uh, in what you guys are trying to do here and certainly what we've done. So robbery was ruled out, and both girls had uh, mud on their shoes, and their pants were wet below the knee. So there was some kind of chase, it sounds like, or they were running in mud or, or something. Or maybe they were kneeling. Maybe. Maybe maybe the perpetrator made them kneel, like an execution. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that possibility as well. And, um, you know, when we are talking about a potential sexually motivated crime if that's what we have here uh you know was he forcing them to do something orally to him or something along those lines uh, i'm wondering about that possibility too if they were kneeling but you know keep in mind this is july and and uh you know they had some pretty high temperatures out there so one of the things that gray's been really helping with is trying to identify water sources for that area where could these girls have been where they would have you know, come into contact with water like that. That's great, yeah. I, I, I appreciate that we're getting into the minutia of this because I really dig true crime minutia. One thing that you said before was that the license was on the dashboard of the car, and that indicated the car was parked there and then the license was placed there. Otherwise, the license would have slid off. That is one of the things that's that's debated. You know, I, I've, I've seen the dash, well, I've seen the same model dashboard for myself, and it kind of depends on where the license was. If it was put directly up against the glass, I think there's a good chance that it could have sat there while the car was driven around. Yeah, well, in the, in the trunk of the vehicle, I think on JB's pant leg, I would, I'm assuming, because they said that um, Hollett was in there first, 
and then JB second. And there was a shell like precariously balanced on the pants. So a nine millimeter. I wonder how shell. that would get there. Yeah, a nine millimeter shell was just precariously balanced there. I'd like to see a photograph of that actually. Well, this is like. this is super interesting because it seems like the killer put the shell there to show people that that they were shot and then left the license on the dashboard to show that this was who someone was shot. who was shot, someone's missing car or someone's so the missing the owners of this car would probably be declared missing at some point. So whoever would go up to this car would see right away that this this license and you know through the windshield you guys are making a great point, and let me let me throw this little twist at you. So, police find that car about eight o'clock in the morning, and not only do you have the driver's license that's on the dashboard, but uh, the driver's side window is rolled down. Uh, their purses are in the vehicle. The keys aren't available, but they are they're able to open the door. Um, they essentially sit there for six hours before someone from Dothan Police Department gets out there, an investigator, and says, oh, look, we could just use this latch to pop the trunk open. Let's do that and go take a look. So, um, yeah, it's very strange because you guys are talking about a scene where someone that comes up on it might assume, hey, why is this ID out here? Uh, You know, it, it certainly seems like the killer wanted them to be found, um, but you've got a... I, I believe it's a lieutenant, if I remember right, that is literally sitting there for six hours and just not putting that together. In so many cases that there's somebody missing and you find their car, it, it seems like it's only a natural response. The first thing you do is pop that trunk open and, you know, you see from all these different shows, you expect possibly to prepare yourself that there's going to be a body in there. Yet yeah, that didn't happen here. They sat around the car for several hours. So that's a little bit of a perplexing thing uh, in itself. Well, we know in Moore's case they didn't pop the trunk until Fred was with the car a couple of days later. Yeah, same thing with Brianna Maitland's case. Uh, Actually, her dad had to drive to the junkyard, and he pried the trunk open with his son uh, next to him, but uh, with a crowbar, um, and they were actually expecting to find Brianna in the trunk at that moment, but didn't. Maybe this whole popping of trunks is just something that we've learned on TV, and we think that it just happens as second nature. I wonder if you need to have, like, a a warrant sometimes. A warrant or permission. There's no real reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, in in all of these cases, it wasn't done, and it does kind of strike me like the killer might have known them because we've heard numerous times that when someone kills somebody, especially if it's a, a man and a woman, the man will leave the woman's body in a place where he knows it will be found because he doesn't want to disrespect that woman, doesn't want to disrespect the person that he had a relationship with. Do you think that it might be the case where the killer knew these two and wanted the bodies to be found as soon as possible? I'm still open to, to both sides of that um, because there, there's an interesting aspect in that the, the street that they're found on, uh, it's called Herring, uh, is pretty secluded. There's a lot of coverage there. Uh, it's not a main thoroughfare through the town. Um, so it seems like they could have been trying to hide them a little bit. You know, they could have left them out on, uh, there's, there's a highway right there, 123, that they could have left them out on. They didn't. They kind of took it more farther east and uh, hid them on this somewhat of a side street. But another interesting fact around this is 
their car was only about a half mile away from the gas station where they made the phone call home. Uh, so you have to try to wonder, okay, did someone possibly see him at the gas station, follow them from there, get them to pull over somehow? How far away from this scene did they go? Uh, one of the other things that comes up is police say that their car seemed like it was almost out of gas when it was found. And when you talk to JB's family, they say that she filled it up the day before. So there's some potential that the car was actually driven a considerable distance that night. And then you wrap all that up with someone drove the car, not only back close to where the girls were when they made the phone call, but it's also only about a mile away from the local police department. Oh, wow. Oh, that's pretty brazen. There's a lot of bizarre things going on, and just the fact that a witness saw the girls leave the the store they called from, the gas station they called from, and they were literally, what, a stone's throw from getting onto the road they needed to to go on to get home, but something happened in a very short uh, distance and, and amount of time to where they didn't get on that road. And I think we get into it a little bit, the area, and Gray does a really good job of demonstrating this, the area there, if you're not very familiar with that area, there's an area where, where three roads seem to merge on top of each other, and if you somehow hit the wrong spot, uh, you, you might be going down the wrong road. Great. Also, uh, tell them about the, the sign. Oh, well, the sign, there's a 321 a highway and a 123, same numbers, but just reversed. And there's this intersection. It looks like somebody like comedically put this together. It's insane. You, you sit there and you wouldn't have a clue. I mean, you could easily take 123 or 321 and there's arrows pointing in all different directions. And that's when you see this picture of this intersection. That's when you realize, wow, they could easily have been lost. Because even after they were at the convenience store gas station, the lady who gave them directions saw them go in the right direction. So they were heading towards that sign, basically. It's another mile or so away. They just got lost after that somehow. So tell us about that witness who gave them directions. What's her story? That's been interesting. Um, We know her name, um, and... On web sleuths, it was kind of assumed that she had passed away. There was an obituary that was being circulated, but I looked at the obituary, and I'm like, this is not the right person. Uh, We know that it was a mother and daughter that were at this convenience store. Uh, The story is that they were going there to get a a Coca-Cola, if I remember right. Um, But the convenience store closed at 11, and this whole interaction with them talking to the girls is at about 11.30. So... um, It's a little strange. There are some people that are wondering if the information that is coming from the woman and her daughter about the interaction, if it's if it's all accurate and legit. We have a bit of a discrepancy because there was a police officer that actually saw them earlier that night in another nearby town called Hebland. And he says their car actually looked a little bit dirty and that he was thinking, hey, that's too nice of a car to be dirty like that. Um, when the woman saw them at Big Little Convenience Store, she said that the car looked extremely clean. And then when we get the vehicle found the following day, uh, it looks like it's dirty again, and there's potentially some damage to it. That's a little bit debated also. Um, Police have made some comments that allude to the fact that it was 
it was definitely still drivable, but there might have been some damage that occurred to it as well. Um, so there's just, there's, there's a lot going on with it. That's, that's why we knew this is the case to do a deep dive on. I would yeah. love to be able to ask um, that woman. I'd love for Morph to do an interview with her and to just go through what she remembers about that night, what she said to the girls, what she saw, uh, and to clear some things up. You know, how is she getting a Coca-Cola at 11:30 if the place yeah. closed at 11? And did they get out of the car to go? I mean, wouldn't the clo- it would be dark at that point? The building, you would think at 11:30 if it closed at 11. I mean, I know you do close-up duties, but did they actually get out of the vehicle when they were talking to uh, JB or Tracy? Right. Right. And on top of that, think about the last time that you spent a half hour at a gas station. Yeah, it doesn't happen often for uh, for us over here, but I don't it know. Definitely wasn't getting gas. <laughs> yeah, R- rural areas. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes things are a little different. Sometimes there's vending machines outside of those gas stations too, so that could be um, what the Coke was. Um, what about fingerprints? Are there have there been fingerprints found in the car? Now, police initially said that there was a lot of evidence that they found in the car, and they've been a little tight-lipped about that. But we do know that a palm print was definitely found on the trunk. They've they've been pretty open about that. Okay, um, good. So they haven't talked a whole lot about fingerprints in particular, but I, I'd have to assume there's a good chance that there was because, you know, the perpetrator drove the car. Now, uh, what about any confessions? I, I'm looking here that someone actually kind of had a quasi-confession, this uh, Johnny Barentine? Yeah, uh, a guy named Johnny Barentine who lived not far from... Uh, the, the scene where the car was discovered or the store where they were seen went out to to go shopping, uh, picked something up and left his wife at home. And when he came home, he was acting a little bit uh, strange and uh, he wound up making some statements which made him sound as if he might know something about the, the crime. And eventually he goes to police and talks to them. And before you know it, he's confessing to their murders. And police think they have the guy. And doubt that he's, after all that, he's saying that, you know, I didn't really do it. I just wanted to collect this reward that they're offering. Uh, And then the DNA that they have does not match him. So they let him go. Um, but he did make some statements which are interesting. You know, he says that he saw a black truck and um, he was hit possibly in his car by this black truck. Um, But then he also adds weird things like he saw some stranger that he encountered that he didn't know who it was. And his story gets kind of twisted and, and... and bizarre, but you wonder if there's some kind of truth to any of it. Uh, and unfortunately, he passed away, so now he's somebody that can't be talked to. Of course, to. he passed away. But you wonder if there's something there, some partial uh, amount of truth in, in what he said. But it's interesting because he mentioned a black truck, and a black truck is something that comes up pretty frequently in this case. I find it really ironic that. He all of this happens in his account. He said he was hit by the black truck near Herring Avenue. I find it really ironic that the the avenue is named Herring Avenue, like Red Herring. That's just a yeah. 
That's just a silly observation on my part. You know what I find really weird uh, is that he thinks he could confess to these murders and then get the reward and not go to jail. I don't understand that. That makes no logical sense to me. Yeah, it didn't start as a confession. It started as him saying that he had information that he wanted to give to them. And his story kept changing, and they basically kept him in an interrogation room for about four hours. Uh, and this is a guy that wasn't the smartest person. Some people think that he had uh, some mental disabilities. I think he only completed seventh or eighth grade. So it kind of has some of the hallmarks that you see with false confession stories that we've seen in other cases. Yep. Uh, we're going to definitely be diving into that a bit more. We're trying to get an expert to come on for an interview on the podcast to dive into that more with us as well. Um, but yeah, his story first, he didn't know the guy in the truck. It was just a tattooed man. Then the story changed and it was, no, it's actually my neighbor, but he kept putting himself at the scene of the crime. So that's when law enforcement eventually, you know, just pressed him and and got him to confess to it. But it was a, a grand jury that let him go when the DNA results came back. Okay. There is a videotape of the interview that the police took when they were interrogating him. Is there any chance that the three of you can get your hands on this and, and look at it? Like, you don't have to, you know, put it on the YouTube channel or play it on the podcast, but do you think that there's a, a chance that you would at least be able to view it? No, I've it's, it's so tough to tell because, uh, you know, with all the different police departments we have here, it seems like they all run on different policies and practices, so... Uh, I'm really not sure if it's going to be made available or if we could possibly bump into it. We are pulling some court records, um, so I don't know. We, maybe we could find a transcript that would include portions of it or something along those lines. We had, again, reached out to the police, uh, multiple police jurisdictions that investigated the case. We got no response whatsoever, not a, a no thank you or not interested or sorry, we can't talk about it. It's an open case. We've had no response at all. Um, we've reached out to, you know, again, witnesses, people that have been mentioned in some of the news articles, and we've, as of now, have run into uh, roadblocks. So that's one more reason we're hoping that this podcast will shake something loose and people will be willing to talk. Now, it's interesting, we actually did have a couple people reach out to us with some interesting information. Uh, One person believes that their um, family member may have been involved, and another person believes he saw the girls that night with two other vehicles. Um, And without giving too much away, these two different people, their stories sort of gel together and um, they sort of play off of each other and these people don't know each other but I thought it was interesting both of them did not feel comfortable uh, talking on air unless her voice was disguised so luckily John was able to disguise her voices um, but they were both pretty nervous to come forward and and use their real voices on air Um, but it's things like this that we're getting these tidbits of information that might lead someplace. That's excellent. Yeah, I'd be willing to bet that the uh, police in any jurisdiction might uh, pay attention if you were to send that information forward. Um, But yeah, I think usually with this kind of thing, it really does take 
take it being put out before they respond. We saw that with something that we're covering now, uh, Suitcase Jane Doe on Crawl Space. And I think from the police's perspective, it's kind of just like, you know, let, let me see something first. You know, like, uh, I, I don't really believe you're going to do anything until it's out there and it's an issue for me and it's something I have to deal with. And I'm just going to piggyback on that comment and say the police are also trained to stone face you. So even if they think that there's something there, they're not going to have they're, they're going to poker face you until you get out of the office and then they're going to go to work and look for it. Is that yeah. the suitcase Jane Doe, the uh, one that just happened up in Greenwich or a different one? No, actually. What, did you just discover another woman <laughs> that was chopped in half and put into a suitcase? <laughs> yeah, no, well, no. Yeah, they, I've just been covering it. Uh, they cover, There's a woman that was found in a, she was hands bound, feet bound in a red suitcase thrown off the side of the road in Greenwich. Yeah, no, no, that that is not the one. That is actually not the one that wow. we were talking about on uh, on Crawl Space. Yeah, we're, the one we were talking about uh, happened uh, yeah years ago out of Pennsylvania. But it does it, it is coincidental because we were doing this work, and it, it does now seem like more uh, more people are found in suitcases than uh, previously believed, and uh, I'm sure not all of them are connected. So yeah, best of luck uh, speaking with law enforcement again. I think um, if you were to send them stuff you'll event you'll eventually hear from them it's just a matter of time i think um if you guys continue your your work responsibly uh there's no there's no reason not to uh uh write you back and uh in fact our our good friend kenneth mains would be really pissed to hear uh to hear you guys uh say that well uh yeah i, I and I, I think somebody like ken mains recognizes that there's a uh some help sometimes in in this kind of format um, again, obviously we know it's an open investigation. They don't want to reveal the stuff they have. They don't want to jeopardize the case. We, we understand that. But at the same time, if, you know, there's certain things they can talk about that are, you know, not off the record, you know, any kind of response would be uh, appreciated. And hopefully they do decide to, to reach out to us, but eventually anything we gather, we'd like to send to them and say, look, this is what we found. These people have told us this. Um, but again, we have issues there where there's a lot of people that are suspicious of the police down there, uh, to, is there any kind of cover up or involvement? Um, so the one person that I mentioned that had his voice disguised said he'd be willing to talk to the FBI but he didn't want to talk to the local police. So he's got a very uh, a very bad taste about the police down there. So not to talk ill of the police, but there is some kind of uh, uneasiness there, it seems like, amongst some of the residents there. Some of the uneasiness uh, is somewhat easy to understand. There was a blogger that was writing kind of his own little form of a newspaper down there uh, about this case. And he had some people come forward to him that said that they were former law enforcement and that they knew that some people in law enforcement were involved with this. And they started naming names and uh, all of those police officers got together and basically sued the blogger and added the other people that made those comments to the lawsuit as well. Um, it, that all made the news, and then news about the lawsuit kind of fell to the wayside, but we did some digging, and we found that the uh, lawsuit was eventually dropped by the officers, and then the blogger uh, provided proof to the court that 
he was essentially bankrupt and that there was, you know, no way for him to even adequately defend himself. I find it hard but, to believe that a blogger was bankrupt, John Lorden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe he should have been a YouTuber, then he'd be rolling in cash. It's yeah. just not, not, not a ra- wrong time, wrong place. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when, when, when police respond like that, and I understand, I mean, you know, it's essentially they're, they're worried. They're living in these small communities and you've got people that are accusing them of very terrible things. Um, so I, I, it's not that I don't understand them wanting to defend themselves and them doing that type of lawsuit. It's just seeing so many of them band together to quiet this guy. Um, wasn't there just some other ways to do this? You know, point out the fact that he's not reaching out to them, that they're open for conversations about the supposed involvement. Uh, I don't know. It just it seemed a little heavy handed. And then when they eventually dropped the suit, it, it kind of left me with this big question of why, because the blogger wasn't the only one named on the suit. They also had the people that were actually making these comments that the blogger was repeating listed on the suit and they just dropped it against all of them. So uh, just another strange turn in this this story. Do you have plans to or will we definitely be hearing from friends and family of the two young ladies? That's one of the things that is a challenge at this point, um, but we will be talking about why we believe that is so much of a challenge. There was a show that was done about this case called Haunted Evidence, and it's essentially a show about psychic investigators. Uh, there are it's, it's a strange presentation because when you watch it, there's a lot of good and accurate information that's being presented about the case. But then you have this whole other angle where the psychics then take that and, you know, close their eyes and have their visions and add information to the case that for me personally is somewhat questionable. Um, So it's strange because it looks like the families were really engaged with that process. And it sounds like since that, they haven't quite been as engaged with any media processes around that. There is a documentary that was made recently, uh, and it seems like that documentarian was able to get some of the families to make comments there. Um, but there seems to be some strange protection going on around that. I think they're trying to find distribution for the documentary or something, and they're trying to essentially keep the family quiet. It's, it's one of those things that I'm hoping once the episodes start rolling out, the families can listen to it for themselves. They can look into our backstories. They can see why we do this. They can look at other cases where we've helped other people. And hopefully they can decide for themselves if uh, they want to participate or not. But there does seem to be a little bit of a protection layer right now. Right, Morph? Is that kind of how you describe it? I, I think part of it is we're talking about a small southern town and, you know, those small towns have a reputation of, of being uh, protecting themselves and, and uh, maybe not uh, being as trusting of, of outsiders. Um, and I think part of that's at play. But, again, going back to the show that was made about the case, it just sort of made a mockery about it. And the case has been saturated with rumors and innuendos and, and false reporting of stuff. And it may have just been just too much for the families of these girls to 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 want to be a participant in any more of it. So hopefully anybody that's out there, friends, family, uh, some of the people we reached out to, if they hear the episodes, they see what we're doing, what we're about, 
um, they will come forward and try and, and help provide information. Again, we're we're doing this to try and raise awareness of the case because it's going to be 20 years old this summer. We want more people to hear about it because the more people hear about it, the greater the chance that somebody out there knows something comes forward. And we're even willing to help raise funds if there's a shortage on finances for the, the police there with DNA testing. We're willing to, to raise funds to pay for that testing if that's an issue. Um, so we really do have the best interest of the case at heart, and hopefully that shows in, in, in the podcast and in the YouTube videos we do. Do you have some sort of formed letter that you would send to the family or maybe like a, a presentation explaining all of this and your intentions? Yeah, I, I, I pretty much we reached out to every person that we had on a list of, of witnesses, uh, family, friends, a couple of my I've had some interaction with on Facebook, um, and um, some of the the reaction, there's just none at all. You get no response. You don't know if they even read it. Um, and some of them, it's a lukewarm, uh, you know, maybe, perhaps. And then some of them, it's just, I don't think so. I don't think we want to be involved in it. So it's, it's a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, again, once they hear it, once they see what we're about, maybe their, their minds will change. But, again, we've already had some people reach out to us with some information that we think is uh, possibly important. And, and as the show moves forward, I think more people down there may come forward as well. That's what we're hoping for. I'm also digging in uh, in terms of research. I mean, we've reviewed no less than 100 news articles at this point uh, on top of all the different social media sources about this case. And even if we can't get them to directly uh, agree to come on, there is enough media out there where I feel like we could accurately represent their point of view, at least at, at those specific time periods. So we'll definitely be working that into the episodes as well. Awesome. Well, hopefully this works out, especially in contacting the family and in contacting law enforcement. I mean, even the information that's already out there in certain blogs or in print means a whole lot more and can sound a lot more important when you hear the the voice behind it. So hopefully you're able to get that. I hope so. And I, I hope the the offer of help. I mean, we're literally wanting to put thousands of dollars on the line to uh, to help them with this case. And I'm hoping that that might open some doors, help some conversations roll as well. And if we hear from them that, you know, no, we've already paid Parabon, they've already come back, that the analysis doesn't work for some reason, we're going to take those same funds and donate them to local causes in the community. Wonderful. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that's going to make it very clear to everyone what our intent is with this project. And we, we strongly believe in this effort. As you guys know, the, uh, the deep dive in podcast form we think is uh, really something that can help these cold cases without a doubt, these unsolved cases. So uh, best of luck to you guys. If you need any help or resources or any, anything at all, please don't hesitate to reach out. And uh, it's quite a, a journey that you guys are undertaking, and um, we wish you the best of luck on this journey. And, you know, feel free to utilize everyone's social presence. If, you're, if you tweet something out about this, give us a heads up and say, hey, can you retweet that? Typically we would anyway, or, you know, that, uh, that along with what you're doing just with the, with the material itself is just as important to cast a much wider net. So don't be shy. Thank you so much, guys. Yeah, we really, really, yeah, thanks a lot.
that's amazing. And where can we find your guys' work? Uh, you can find, there is a website already set up at threemenandamystery.com, and that's with the number threemenandamystery.com. There is a Twitter account set up that is at threemenandamystery, once again with the number three. There is also a Facebook page you can find. Um, so that's the easiest way to kind of get connected to it right now. Follow the Twitter account. We're setting up, we're getting our podcast feeds and all that ready. Um, so that'll be rolling out here shortly. Well, and then iTunes right now, I just got a notification. So people will be able to follow oh, us on iTunes by the time they hear this. How, were you checking excellent, your email excellent. during this? You, were you not paying attention? Yeah, you yeah. checking your email during this? What? I, I can call you He won't stop working. Uh, of course, I just wanted to mention, I'm also really looking forward to the cold case conference where I'm, gonna, I'm fortunate enough to sit on a stage with both of you gentlemen and work and talk about this whole social media uh, working into investigations. I think that's going to be a great conversation, and I'm very proud to be part of that. Well, you yeah, you guys really you guys are going to be on the stage. Tim and I have been set up with these giant thrones that'll be set back a little bit <laughs> and 20 to 30 feet higher. Yeah, on on like risers on top of the stage. Uh, no, no, just kidding. Someone yeah. tells me there's a crawl space episode to come out of. Out of oh yeah, I, I yeah. believe so. Yeah, well, the, get a crawl space episode. I will be in the crawl space under their chairs. Yeah, under the chairs. Yeah, yeah. With the worm. Yeah. So this is the uh, American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. They're doing a conference in Albany, New York, April fifteenth and sixteenth. It is open to the public. Please check out the website. There are links in our show notes. As uh, the guys just said, we're doing a panel with John Lorden and Mike Morford. It's going to be a lot of fun. And is it like uh, Lance Remastera showing up or something? What Re- was, uh... Reamer's man. Reamer's mon. Reamer's man. Reamer. Right. It's Reamer's mon. Yeah. Two A's yeah. there. Two, coming, two A's. coming from the Netherlands, if I heard right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Lance Reamer's mon. Uh, I can't wait to talk to him. <laughs> Yeah, he's very knowledgeable on these oh. things. Way more than uh, the Lance here. He comes across as a little bit egocentric sometimes. A though. little preachy. A little preachy. <laughs> very high maintenance. Uh, um, but handsome as hell. Really, really handsome. Snappy dresser. Yeah. Not as good as John Lorden. <laughs> Who could be? <laughs> the, the bar. He is I'll bring the bar. a fancy jacket. Of course you will. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was predictable. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys uh, very much. This has been uh, been nice to to catch up with you guys, and uh, definitely informative talking about this horrible crime. And we will um, do our best to spread the word about this. And if uh, anybody has information on this, who's listening right now, do you want to deliver a message to them? Where can they deliver their information? Yes, uh, you can email us directly at three men at three men in a mystery.com, and that's the number three in both sides of that. Three men at three men in a mystery.com. 